What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ died, Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor an neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Holly, um, for reading. Uh, feels a bit of a holy grail of passages, doesn't it? It's just, just wonderful, um, wonderful truth after wonderful truth. So let's um, pray for the Lord's help now as, uh, as we uh, delve into it. Psalm 119 says this, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Heavenly Father, uh, we Thank you that we have just heard, read wonderful things from your word. Truths that we could peer into for eternity. Truths we will enjoy and celebrate for eternity. Lord, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts. Be at work in our ears and our eyes and our minds. And help us to see all the more uh, the wonder in these verses, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I wonder, what would you like to be certain about this morning? What would you like to be certain about this morning? Um, finding certainty is quite tricky, isn't it? There's, there's, there's just lots of unknowns. Um, earlier this year, it was looking like finding certainty that a, that a particular flight was going to depart from an airport um, was, was a hard thing. Maybe some of you um, experienced that. Maybe certainty that, that a medical treatment is going to work. Uh, we've got a bunch of students here today, some new faces, welcome, maybe certainty that we're going to get the exam results that, that we need, uh, or, or the job that we want. Maybe certainty that we're going to have um, the money we need in our bank accounts to get through uh, the winter. Maybe certainty about relationships that might feel in a bit of a tricky patch at the moment. Finding certainty is tricky, because we live in a world with lots of uncertainties, don't we? And uncertainties can be numbing, can be crippling, and they leave us feeling quite unsafe. Well, what does the good news of Jesus have to say to this? When you become a Christian, maybe you expect all uncertainties to just magically drift away. But the Bible, God's words, doesn't promise that. No, they don't magically 
disappear. There are still lots of unknowns. So has anything changed? Can we feel certain? Can we feel safe? Well, we've been seeing the last few weeks the difference that following the Lord Jesus makes. And our passage this morning tells us that there is something we can be certain of, that there is a way to feel safe. We're going to see one certainty that puts all other uncertainties in their place. And that certainty is found in verse 31, that God is for us. He is for his people. If that's the only thing that you remember from this morning, then then, then take that away. That's our first point. God is for us. He gave us his son. Looking at verses 31 to 32. We got to the end of last week's passage and it, it ended with, I wonder if you remember, a kind of unbreakable chain of God's saving grace. Um, I think there's a, there's a picture up here just to kind of show it. Um, the verses move through this unbreakable chain of God's, God's saving grace. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Uh, the idea is that this saving work of God, if, if one of them is true, then all of them are true. From, from start to finish, our salvation is in the hands of the kindness and mercy of God, that nothing can wedge that apart. But this is more than kind of a giant set of dominoes, a big set of dominoes you can kind of pop your hand in halfway through and and stop the rest from from turning over, can't you? From God's perspective, these aren't different steps that can happen kind of apart from each other. It's one big unbreakable chain of saving grace. That's why he says in verse 31, the beginning of our passage today, what should we say in response to these things? What should we say if God's salvation for his people is unbreakable? How how can we respond? And in one sense, well, there is nothing more to say. It's kind of a rhetorical question. What, What more can we say? But to help us feel how amazing that is, uh, we, get, we get the rest of the passage to help us feel the certainty that God is for us, the safety of him being for us. Paul gives us five questions throughout our passage. You'll see there's one in verse 31, another in verse 32, another in th- 33, 34, and 35. And each of these questions deals with a challenge to this certainty. And Paul is showing how each challenge falls flat on its face. The first question is in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now it can feel as if many things are against us, can't it? Paul's going to list some more in verse 35. Maybe you saw things like trouble, famine, persecution. If you've read the Psalms recently, you'll know that the Psalms talk about God's people being surrounded by enemies. We don't tend to feel like there are literal people with swords surrounding us, do we? But there are other foes that that kind of press in. I wonder what you maybe feel is is against you this morning or this week. Well, Paul says here, however great, however pressing, however heavy that opposition may feel, ultimately it will always come to nothing because God is for us. 
If God is on our side, on the side of his people, if this unbreakable chain is truly unbreakable, then who can really be against us? It's not even saying that there are some things against you and God is just bigger than than them. If that was true, then maybe we might be scared that one day something bigger than God might might turn up. For Paul here, the category just doesn't exist. If God is for us, who, who can be against us? Think about it this way. If we try and imagine everything that exists in the universe, we could, we could put it in, in kind of two categories. Um, God on the one side, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and creation on the other. And we've, we're told by Paul, God is for us. His saving work is in unbreakable chain. Uh, but what about the other side, creation? Well, well, we've also been told that God is sovereign over all creation. Nothing here happens without his say-so. And if both categories are under him, then what's left that can be against us? God is for us. To paraphrase the Lord of the Rings, this is the one certainty to rule them all. The one certainty to rule them all. But how do we know? And that's amazing, isn't it? It, it, Just amazing. But how do we know? How do we know he's for us? Well, then we get question number two. Verse 32, have a look down. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We know God is for us because he gave us his son. We know God's for us because he gave us his son. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't an accident, wasn't a reluctant commitment, but a costly and loving gift. There was a preacher in the 19th century, the great name Octavius Winslow. Wayne and Simone clearly didn't want to go for that one. Um, He put it this way, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. In a sense, all those other things are are true, but ultimately what is going on here? It is the Father giving up the Son for his people. We know God is for us because he gave us his Son. It's a gift in the past and it secures blessing for our future. And I wonder, in that verse 32, did you see he argues from the greater to the lesser, the, the kind of bigger thing or the harder thing to the, the easier thing? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? Let me try and illustrate it. Say um, I went to a load of effort to make uh, a meal for uh, Sophie. Those who don't know, Sophie and I are getting married in a few weeks' time. I went loads of effort to make a nice meal. I bought some nice wine. I researched it, so it went really well with a nice cut of fresh fish because I know she likes that. Put loads of time and energy, marinating it overnight, and she's coming back from work, and I just think, well, I'll just kind of get it more or less ready, but just leave it on the side, and, and we never get around to eating it. Or, or I don't get out the fancy plates, we just kind of have some, some paper ones because that's easier. 
No, no, at that point, I've done the hard thing, haven't I? I've done all the work. It's all ready to go. Of course, I'm going to plate it up and make it look fancy and have it feel nice. We can sit down and enjoy it. I've done the, the costly bit, all the work. It's, it's easy to do the rest. In a similar way, God has done the greater thing by not sparing his son, by giving us the Lord Jesus on the cross. He's paid the weighty price for our sin. And because he's done the greater thing, we can be confident he will do all the rest. That's what he means. You see in the middle of that verse, how will he not also along with him? We don't get these things separate from Jesus, but, but they are a blessing that come as part of being in Jesus. He will deliver on everything he has paid for. If you like, the cross is God showing us his hand. He's laying out his intention so we are sure of every move he's going to make. God is for us. How do we know? Because he gave us his son. And if God is for us, who can be against us? That is a certainty to rule all certainties. That is a certainty that can make us safe. And we'll think of two big implications in a moment about our sin and our circumstances. But firstly, one thing that this means, if God is for us because he gave us his son, is that we measure God's favor towards us, his people, by the cross. We measure God's favor by the cross. Our circumstances are probably often what cause us to to doubt whether God is for us, aren't they? We we ask something, something dreadful happens, painful happens, and we ask, how can God be for me? How could this be his will? We say, well, I know Jesus died for me, but this makes no sense at all. Have you found yourself asking that? Imagine most of us have at some point. I know Jesus died for me, but this, this makes no sense. God can't be for me. Well, Paul is teaching us that we need to swap those two phrases around. Instead of saying, I know Jesus died for me, but this, this makes no sense. God can't be for me. We need to say, well, this makes, this makes no sense. But I know Jesus died for me. We're to measure God's favor by the cross. Paul's telling us to look at what we don't understand in light of what we do. And that doesn't mean that we don't groan, that we don't grieve, but it does mean that there is at least one light shining in the darkness. Whatever I'm going through, it cannot mean that he isn't for me because he gave me his son on the cross. In an uncertain world, the Christian believer has one certainty which puts all other uncertainties in their place. That God is for us. He gave us his son. And that means nothing can separate us from him. Let's look at two implications of that great certainty. That's our second point. The first thing is that our sin can't separate us from him. If God is for us and he gave us his son, then our sin can't separate us from him. Verse 33 and 34, sorry. 
This is where we get our next two kind of unanswerable questions, if you like. Um, it's like, at this point, Paul decides to take us into a heavenly courtroom. And, and, and we're the ones in the dock. And firstly, there's this question of, of, of the charge. We kind of charge the person who's in the dock. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who will bring any charge? And if we examine our hearts, we know that in one sense, there are lots of charges that could be brought against us, aren't they? I wonder who might be speaking them. It could be Satan. In the Bible, he's described as the accuser. He brings accusations. It could be other people. Perhaps people who see you at your very worst, who know your deepest and darkest secrets. Perhaps you hear their voices accusing you of being impatient or unkind or, or lied to or violent towards. Maybe it's ourselves. Maybe your biggest accuser is, is your own heart. Find it impossible to forget things in your past. They keep accusing you and you feel overwhelmed by guilt or shame. Who will bring any charge? Well, the famous line that we're used to hearing in kind of legal dramas is that one, objection, Your Honour. Do you ever see, see that kind of objection, Your Honour? It'd be nice to say that one day, but pro- probably won't. But it, it's, it's a charge that gets brought against the judge when something seems kind of unfair, something that's going on. And the judge can go one of two ways. They can, they can say sustained, which means, yeah, you're right to object. Um, we'll, we're going to have to change tack and take that into account. Or overruled. No, that that charge, that falls flat. The picture here is God's people are in the dock and the accusations are are coming thick and fast, left, right and centre. It's like someone saying, objection, Your Honour. Didn't you know what they did last week? Objection, Your Honour. Don't you know what what he or she was thinking this morning? Objection, Your Honour. Don't you know about their browsing history? I wonder if maybe one of our deep fears as Christians is that one day... God will say, sustained, uh, that, 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 that he's, that he's we will hear that and, and it will be taken against us. But that's not what happens here. That's not what we are told. It's as if all these voices are raising to a crescendo and we look to the judge and what does he say? Overruled. Overruled. The charges fall flat. Why? Well, the answer to the question in verse 33 because it is God who justifies. That word justifies is the idea of declaring righteous, declaring not guilty. God is the one who gives the verdict, and he declares not guilty. But how? How how can he do that? Well, remember, who are these charges against? Have a look down at verse 33 again. They're against those whom God has chosen, God's people. These charges are fired at God's people who are in that unbreakable chain of God's sovereign grace, who once they've been saved, he will bring all the way to glory. The picture here is that God as judge has already saved his people in Christ. But the world, the devil, even our own hearts continue to accuse us, throwing objection after objection. But because it is God who justifies, the answer is overruled every time because the charges are too late. 
They're thrown at those who are already declared not guilty. But how can we say we are not guilty? Well, that is the heart of the good news of Jesus, isn't it? Have a look at verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. It's as if Jesus is there in court as evidence, as, as able to answer the charges with his hands and his sides to say, hasn't the punishment already been paid? The old hymn, Man of Sorrows, puts it so well. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. So when we feel that the weight of sin and, and guilt pressing in upon us, we hear also the voice of our Savior saying to his father, Father, there is no condemnation for, for Johnny, for Andrew, for Molly, for, for Sarah. I've sealed their pardon with my blood. If God is for us because he gave us his son, we know our sin cannot separate us from him if we are in Christ. But amazingly, this isn't just something kind of dry and dusty in the past. No, in that verse, we see Jesus doesn't stay dead. He is raised and is at the right hand of God. And what's he doing? He's interceding for his people right now. Carrying on the legal drama theme, I, I, I really like them. Um, one of the best ones I've seen was one called Just Mercy, um, which is actually based on a true story, based on a book you can read. And it's a story of a Harvard lawyer, Brian Stevenson, who battles for people who've been put on death row because of a miscarriage of justice. Uh, and normally it's to do with um, institutional racism. And what we're introduced to this character called Walter McMillan, who's wrongly accused of murder. And he's held on death row for six years before having a re retrial. And the retrial lasts a day and a half. Six years for a day and a half retrial. And for much of that time, he's assuming he's gonna die for a crime that he didn't commit. Waiting, waiting, until the most precious thing happens. When you're accused of something, the most comforting experience, it's having someone speak up for you, isn't it? Brian Stevenson turns up and he says, Walter, I will speak for you. I will fight your case. He spoke up for him. And that's what we're told that Jesus does for us in heaven. He speaks up for us. But it's even more extraordinary because unlike Walter McMillan, our defense isn't that we're innocent. Our defense is that we're guilty, but Jesus lived a perfect life for us. That Jesus has gone to death row for us, if you like. That the price has been paid. When those accusations sound, he says, no, he's mine, she's mine. I died for them. Who are you to condemn? Jesus prays for us. He pleads our case for us. A hymn writer called uh, Augustus Toplady, we sing a few of his hymns, um, captured this really beautifully in this hymn, Arise, My Soul. He says this, the words will come up on the screen. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off the guilty fears. 
the bleeding sacrifice, Lord Jesus, on my behalf appears. Before the throne, that's the throne in heaven, my surety, my assurance stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. And then he pictures this idea of Jesus' wounds speaking on our behalf. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers, prayers that work because Jesus has paid the price. They strongly plead for me. And what do they plead? Forgive him. Forgive her. Oh, forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. Jesus has paid for us and Jesus is praying for us. I don't know what fears or guilt or shame you might be carrying this morning, but if you're a Christian believer, we know that Jesus' blood is sufficient to cover all of it. And our Saviour's love isn't just in the past. No, he's praying for each one of us by name. He knows your needs better than you do and is praying for you every day. He's paid for you and he's praying for you. If God is for us and he's given us his son, then we know our sins, they cannot separate us from him. But Paul has another implication, which is verse 35 to 39 which is that our circumstances can't separate us from him either. We touched on this briefly earlier, but look down at verse 35. This is the last one of those questions he asks. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He comes up with a list of potentials. Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword things that are, that are outside, things that are inside us. All these things could happen to us or people close to us. They, they, they make us maybe ask, has God stopped loving me? Have I been separated from him? But the list isn't comprehensive, is it? And to be sure that we get his point, Paul extends it in verse 38 pretty much to include anything we can think of. He kind of puts them in pairs to, to kind of feel the fullness. Verse 38, we read this earlier, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, so not the taking of my life nor the struggles in my life, neither angels nor demons, nothing in the spiritual realm, neither the present or future, nothing that I'm going through now and nothing unknown that I will go through in the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, just to be sure he's not missed anything will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now notice what he's not saying. He's not saying that Christians won't encounter these things. He's not saying Christians won't suffer, that they won't starve or even die. Circumstances can be very hard. Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus' Sermon on the Mount tells that God sends the rain on the righteous and the wicked. And I think partly that's why we get that little quote from Psalm 44, is to show us that suffering for God's people is not something that is new. It can and does happen to Christians, but it doesn't set alarm bells going off in heaven. Now he's not saying that Christians won't encounter this, but he is saying, if God is for us, then not even these, not even the most dreadful or powerful thing can separate us from him. 
And what is it like being with him? Well, it is like being surrounded by everlasting love. Love of the Father and the Son. We're not with him forever, inseparably, kind of in a begrudging state, like being kind of stuck in an elevator with a noisy or, or grumpy child. No, this is the love of God in Christ that is inseparable for us. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through now or in the future, God still says, I love you. But where does that leave us when we do encounter these things? For some of us, that's time to time. For many of us, it will be a daily occurrence. Do we just kind of dig down deep? Do we kind of take the punches of life and just hope we get through all the rounds and we're still kind of standing at the end, not too bruised, not kind of got cauliflower ear? When he says, verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Maybe you think, Paul, I'm blooming well, don't feel like a conqueror. But that's not where it ends. We're not more than conquerors because we've tried really hard or because of our survival abilities. No, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus changes our relationship to all our circumstances. Changes from a posture of uncertainty and defeat to one of confidence and triumph. And not just one that's kind of victory by the skin of your teeth, but more than conquerors. But what does he, how, what does he mean, more than conquerors? How do you more than conquer? Well, John Piper helpfully puts it a little bit like this. He says, when you kind of conquer an enemy, well, they're defeated, uh, maybe even killed. But when you more than conquer, you bring your enemy under your rule. Your enemy is taken captive and forced to bow the knee and serve you. And that is what is happening here. All these things, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, in Christ are more than conquered, not just defeated, but taken captive, forced to bow the knee and fulfill God's purposes for them, not their own. Last week we saw verse 28, in all things he works for the good of those who love him to make them more like Christ. And that's the same idea here. God is able to use even the things that might threaten to separate us from him as his servants to make us more like Jesus. Let me close with a brief example of someone who really got this. A man called Joseph Son. Uh, he learnt the utter security of the Christian in all circumstances. He was a Romanian pastor um, during the communist regime. And at that time, the Christian faith had become virtually illegal. But he and others, they still preached the gospel. And the police would threatened him repeatedly with being imprisoned and arrested. And he got interrogated a number of times. Interrogated and even threatened with death. There was one point where he was threatened with death every day for six months. And finally, he said something remarkable to them. He said, sir, you don't understand that when you kill me, you send me to glory. When you kill me, you send me to glory. 
you cannot threaten me with glory. See, for Joseph, death had been more than conquered. He had a new relationship to it. Persecution had been more than conquered. He knew God was for him because he'd given him his son. In Christ, death was now a doorway to glory. It couldn't threaten him in the same way anymore. It couldn't separate him from God's love in Christ. And we probably won't feel like more than conquerors in the moment that where, where we feel hardship, but we can be certain of this. And, and maybe when you're not in that moment, this is the time to really dig down into that truth so that when it comes, you can lean on it. I began asking that question, uh, what would you like to feel certain of? I wonder as we kind of look ahead into the, the ups and downs and the uncertainties of life. It's a little bit like kind of seeing a path that goes out before us, but it kind of dips over the brow of the hill, doesn't it? And there's the stuff beyond that you can't quite see. Maybe you, can, maybe you know something that's there and it's a, bit, it's a bit scary. We can't see the other side. But we kind of keep going. And if you look up a little bit more, though, you see, hang on, there's another hill, a bigger one, further, higher up, and the path pops up again. And, and we're still going. What we see here is this sense in which God is promising that he is for us. That we'll, There are those dips that we can't see. But that path, he will be on us on that one. But then there's another dip after that one, isn't there? Because there's, there's always more unknowns. But if we look up a little bit higher, there's, there's a bigger hill and we can still see the path going. And there is that promise that nothing can separate us from. There will be nothing in those dips, nothing in those moments, not our sin, not our circumstances, that can separate us from him until well, we look wherever up the top is and we see him waiting there and ushering us in to glory at the end of our destination. God's grace is an unbreakable chain he is for us how do we know he gave us his son and so we can trust our our kind of unknown futures to him because we know we will never be separated from him let's take a moment to reflect on that and then i'll pray Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the glorious things we've seen in this passage. And we thank you that because we know you are for us, because you gave us your son, that we are safe. Thank you that we know with all the uncertainties that that will be filling our hearts and minds, there is one certainty which helps us face all of them that we cannot be separated from you. That our sin can't get in the way, that our circumstances can't get in the way. And that we can be assured of being safe and secure in your love from now unto eternity. Lord, we pray that you would press these truths into our hearts and help us to cling to them and treasure them 
whatever circumstances we're walking into the week ahead. In Jesus' name.